So Nikki and I get a lot of messages asking what podcasts we like to listen to. And I thought I would share another one of my favorites with you guys. It's called The Minds of Madness. And it is a podcast that explores shocking crimes and kind of unravels the extensive damage caused in the aftermath. But the best part of the episodes is that they bring in firsthand accounts from surviving victims of homicide, as well as professionals from forensics and psychology, which, you know, I'm all about that. So it's a great listen. Add it to your, you know, playlist, subscribe, like, follow on any of the platforms you like to listen to. I have a little introduction teaser for you. So I'll let you listen to that here, but I highly suggest give them a listen. You won't be disappointed. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast that explores what causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things. I'm Tyler, and as the host, I'll take you every other week through some of the strangest cases, examining shocking murders from every angle. Like a freeloading son in Tennessee who dismembered his parents after being financially cut off. Or the disturbing case of an elderly man in Australia who washed his wife's remains down a storm drain after dissolving her body in acid. Or the dad in Louisiana who shot his son's martial arts instructor on live television in an act of vigilante justice. Follow The Minds of Madness today on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening now. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And happy Tuesday if you're listening to this on Tuesday. And if you're listening to this on another day, happy day to you. Before we get started on today's episode, we do have a couple of announcements. The first being we want to give a warm welcome and a big thank you to Katie who joined our Patreon group at the forensic specialist level. Thank you, Katie, and welcome. We're so glad to have you. If you are interested in joining the Patreon group, we have lots of different options and fun goodies over there. You get ad-free episodes. You get the episodes early. We have sticker packs and candles and the book club and behind-the-scenes photos from our guests, all sorts of fun little goodies. Uh, Feel free to check that out at patreon.com. And uh, now moving into our next announcement for the week. So Nikki and I decided that we are going to do a summer schedule for episodes. We are moms, and that is a big priority for us to get to spend some time with the kiddos while they are out of school. So the month of July and August... We are only going to be releasing one episode. If you are a Patreon member, you still will get the one monthly bonus episode. So you'll get two episodes a month. Non-Patreon listeners, you will get one episode a month. We appreciate you giving us support and showing us a little grace during this time as it is important to us to continue to put out content for you guys, but also balance our responsibilities and time with our kids and our families. So just, uh, just a reminder, starting July and August, it will just be one episode for the month. And then we will be back to weekly episodes in September. So thank you again. But without further ado, let's move into this week's episode. Okay, so for this week, we have a fun one. Um, This is somebody who actually reached out to us and expressed interest in being a guest, which Nikki and I absolutely love when listeners send in people that they know or occupations that they're interested in or anything to that effect, we get super excited to hear from you guys. So it was very exciting to have someone offer to be a guest on the show. And this is one that I think kind of circles back to one of our earlier episodes. I'm going to throw back to Daryl, the coroner. I think he's, don't quote me, episode three or four. He's very early in the library. But he had talked about the impact of having chaplains working with the police department and with his unit in particular and it was a very lightly touched upon subject so today we are going to dive more into that and we have Steve joining us who is a chaplain. Nice this is so fun when Daryl was talking about it before I thought that was pretty interesting that they have that within like departments. Yeah I mean I never heard of it before but I definitely can see a lot of pros to having that offered within departments yeah um from what I 
kind of gather, it seems like there's a lot that they touch upon. So it's not necessarily just limiting to serving police officers, but maybe extending further to dealing with the individuals that are affected by the crime. So like a family member, something like that, kind of showing up on scene. So I think it's going to be a very like layered job that he does. And I think he touches a lot of different individuals. So I'm excited to, to dive in and learn more, even, you know, not being super spiritual or religious myself. I'm spiritual, not religious. So not being super religious, I'm still really interested in kind of finding out how they integrate with the police department. I think it's amazing. That'll be fun. And I love that he reached out to us. That was so fun. I was really excited. Yeah, it's very sweet. So I'm excited to bring him on. I'm happy to have him join us. So without further ado, let's let's get rolling. Okay. All right, let me grab him. Hello, Steve. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can, loud and clear. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Fantastic. First of all, thank you for reaching out and offering to be a guest. That was an amazing email to receive, and we're so excited to to have you on. Yeah, I've I've been listening to the... I, I'm not caught up on all the episodes yet, but I have a little woodworking business that I do on the side, and... Um, so I always have to wear headphones because of the sound of the machines and everything else. So that's a lot of what I do when I'm in there is listening to podcasts and things. And so I can't even remember how I found it, but I, I got onto it and it was just one episode after another because you're talking about a lot of the things that I am very interested in myself, you know, <laughs> so Aww. just because, you know, the law enforcement side, I actually, my main job is a pastor. That's what I do full time. And I always wanted to go into law enforcement. I always wanted to be in the military. I was just always very enamored by that. But I knew early on that ministry was the direction that I was going to go. And so it's kind of one of those things where you feel like you're giving up something you really want to do. But then I think when you do what God wants you to do, then he allows you to do the things that you want to do on the other side. And so I, I feel like being a chaplain for law enforcement is the way that God allowed me to get involved in the police department because I went the ministry route. So yeah, he gave you a window. Well, let's jump into it. All right. So I am a chaplain for a police department. And essentially what we do as chaplains is we really are the pastors to the police department and really to the community that the department serves. So they'll call us out to a scene for any number of different reasons. And when I say we, we have a chaplain core and I'm the lead chaplain for our department. The department that I'm in is a pretty large department. The county here in Virginia has about 350,000 people. So we have between 650 and 700 officers and then probably another 100, 150 civilian personnel. So in altogether, the department is probably about 800 people. So yeah, there's a lot to do and really a lot of opportunities to help out in a lot of different aspects. So they would call you in if they need to talk about, like say they just saw something crazy and they need to talk to you about something. Is that where you would come in or how does that work? Yes. So there's actually a couple different times when I would get called. So Let's just say that there is a, a shooting. And so so a couple of different ways that we deal with this. Number one, I said that I'm a pastor to the department, but I'm also a pastor to the community. So there's many times when people in the community don't have a church that they're connected to or a pastor that they know, but they want to talk to a pastor. So they'll call me to come out to that scene. And it could be any time of day. I got called out at two o'clock in the morning last Friday. And uh, yeah, so you just never know. (laughs) And honestly, most of the things that are going to happen like that are going to happen at night or in the middle of the night. You know, Um, in this case, it wasn't a shooting. It was actually somebody woke up and they were going to go to the bathroom or something like that, stopped in one of their son's room. I think he was 24 years old and realized that he was not moving and found out that he was dead called the police. And that's when they show up. And so they call me because they have a job to do when they get on the scene. Now, in something like that, it doesn't look like there's any foul play involved, but you never know. So they have to investigate it until they know that there's not. So they would coordinate everything off and all the different officers that are there on the scene have something they're doing, whether it's protecting the crime scene, keeping people out until they can get everything done within the crime scene that they need to. So then my job would be to deal with the family and to just talk with them to try to help them through the process. I've done it so much now that I know pretty much what the whole process is going to look like from beginning to end. You know, a lot of people just have questions. 
What's going to happen next? Where are they going to take him? So I kind of walked them through the process. This is what's going to happen. This is what they're doing right now. Because the thing is, it's a very touchy situation too. When there is something where, let's say they went in there and they found their loved one laying on the floor and they don't know what happened, but they're dead. And so now the police have the job of, okay, we need to see if there's a gunshot wound. We need to see if there's a knife wound. We need to see if it's a possible overdose. It might just be that they had a heart attack and collapse, but they don't know that. And they can't really move the body because they could contaminate evidence until all the right people are in, in place. So what'll happen sometimes is, you know, my loved one's laying on the floor in there. You can't leave him there. And you don't want to do that, but they have a job to do. So where I come in with them is really to try to help explain. This is why they have to do that. If somebody did commit a crime and your loved one was killed, we want to do everything right, cross the T's, dot the I's to make sure that we're going to get that person and hold them accountable. If they were to move the body right now, it might jeopardize that process. So I'm talking with the family and just a lot of times trying to smooth things over with them. And even more than that, I'm there to provide spiritual support as well. A lot of them do want you to pray with them. A lot of them do want you to talk about spiritual things with them because now here they're thinking about death more because they've got somebody that they love that's that's died. So there's a lot of different things. So that's one aspect. Then the other aspect is, yes, if there does happen to be a police shooting where the police had to shoot somebody or the police came up on a horrific crash where there's bodies that are mangled and things and they see that or children who have uh. died for whatever reason. I've been involved where they've drowned in swimming pools or one that had a massive seizure in the middle of the afternoon taking a nap. All these officers are showing up onto this scene and a lot of the road officers that have not moved into detective positions or things like that are younger guys and ladies who have kids that are that age. And so now they're putting themselves in the position where they're seeing their four-year-old child laying in that bed or their eight-year-old kid drowned in the pool. So it really has a big effect on them in that way. And so, yes, to answer your question, we're coming in and talking with them. And helping them through that process, you know, because at the end of the day, they say that the average person in their lifetime will go through two or three traumatic events, something like that. For an officer, it's not unheard of for them to see two or three in a four day shift, uh, you know, so yeah. they're just adding and adding and adding and adding. And at the end of that incident, everybody clears up and then they go to the next call. Oh, that's so crazy. It really is. And so for them to have an outlet, for them to have somebody to talk to. For them to have somebody that they can go to and just say, hey, it was a rough shift. I mean, this is what we were dealing with. Because you think about it, all right, if you were to take a cup and just keep pouring water and pouring water and pouring water, eventually it's going to overflow. And that's what happens with an officer many times as well. When you put one incident on top of another incident on top of another incident, and eventually it just overflows. And that's where it leads to officer suicide and things like that. So, I mean, even that is something that it's a very, very real danger for them. I mean, three times more likely that an officer will die by suicide than to be killed in the line of duty. That is so crazy. It is. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about. But, but you know, what happens is they fill that cup all the way to the top with traumatic events and then they go home and now they have a, you know, a little bit of an issue with their husband or wife or a little bit of financial issues. And that little thing could be what puts it over the edge for them. Yeah. When you said that it's, they see that just on a shift and then yeah. they go home and right. then go to sleep and then they have to go back to work the next day right. and deal with another three or four. Exactly. And it's changing. It, it used to be that they would say, suck it up and deal with it and go to the next call. It's changing. And, and people are starting to pay more attention to the mental health aspect of police officers and, and trying to have more things that they can do. Supervisors are getting better at helping them to recognize when they're dealing with something difficult because we've had several where officers got shot. Unfortunately, we had a line of duty death. And so they don't make them, all right, you guys get, you know, get your stuff together, you know, be back here tomorrow morning for your shift. They give them the rest of the shift off. They say, you take whatever time you need. So like I say, it's, it's getting better. But with law enforcement being the way that it is today and so many departments being shorthanded and things, they can't just tell the whole department, hey, go take the rest of the week off. So there are some that have to show up and continue to do that job. And it really is a difficult thing, not just from the fact that you could go to work and, and get killed, but the mental health side of it, where you're seeing these things over and over and over and over, and it does have an effect on you. So our job then is to kind of 
jump in on that other side and give them an outlet. Now that you just said that, I have a quick question too. So they're talking to you and unloading all their stuff, but then you're also hearing it too. Then who do you talk to? You know, that is a very interesting thing. I've been asked that question quite a few times, believe it or not. And I have a very strong support system with my family and uh, of course with my church as well. Uh, so I can go talk to any of those anytime that I want to. And I do. We have a couple police officers in our church. And so sometimes I'll just bounce some things off of them, talk about some of the different scenarios and things. And a couple of them are actually in the same department. So they know about the events and whatever. But, you know, honestly, I think that God just gives me the grace to be able to handle those things because he knows that they need to have an outlet. I'm not saying that it never affects me because I do remember one in particular where there was an eight-year-old boy who had come down from somewhere up north and was coming down to go on vacation here. There's a couple theme parks. They were going to a theme park here in Virginia. And so they were spending the night at a hotel and he drowned in the swimming pool. And he wasn't completely dead by the time they found him. They got him to the hospital. They had him on life support and everything else. And they called me to come out and talk with the family. And here I am looking at this little boy laying on the in the hospital bed. And at the time, my son was eight years old. It hit me so hard that I'm like, that could be my son. And what if it was? What if that was my son? You know, and I think in some ways, that's where you get the empathy for families that are going through things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, as much as it affected me in the moment, I went home and I tell you, it makes you hold your kids a little tighter and appreciate them a little bit more and appreciate life more. You'll never be able to treasure life enough. And when somebody dies and you see death, it really brings that a lot more into focus and helps you realize that life is very precious. And it, I mean, one second it's there and the next second it's gone. But I really do believe that God gives me the grace to be able to handle those things so that I can come home at the end of the night, change my clothes and and get in bed and go right to sleep without it being one of those things that's front and center in my mind, because God gives me the grace to be able to help them with those things. How often are you working? Like when you do your normal job and then you get called out for this, is this an everyday thing or just a couple times a week? Well, um, yeah, probably a few times a week. Being the lead chaplain gives me some more responsibilities, but also being a pastor really gives me the flexibility to be able to do this because yes, I am on call 24 hours a day and I could get a call at any moment, any place, you know. Um, So I I guess let me back up and kind of talk about what we do as a chaplain or what my responsibility is. It really is more than just going out to a scene of an accident. So we do death notifications as well. That's hard too. Yeah, let's say that somebody gets killed in a car accident and they were by themselves. Somebody has to go tell the next of kin that their loved one has been killed. So that's probably the hardest thing that we do. And I've done many, many death notifications now. And you just, you never know how somebody's going to handle it. I've had some where people just go crazy and they collapse and everything else. And I've had some that are just like, okay, thank you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're yeah. not here what I just told you, you know, and I, I kind of say it again in a different way. And okay, thank you. I mean, you just never know how somebody's going to respond. But the ones where they really kind of lose it are the tough ones because I'm not so separated from it that it doesn't affect me, at least in the moment. So, you know, I put myself in that situation and it brings tears to my eyes many times when I'm out on a scene because I feel for these families and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Because you'd have to have a big heart for that because it would be hard to not have those emotions and have that like connection with someone who's at their worst time. Right. No, you're exactly right. Because again, how many times does somebody go through a traumatic experience where somebody is being killed in an accident or they're going into the bedroom and finding somebody that's, you know, 25 years old dead? Yeah. Very, very few people have that happen in a lifetime, let alone multiple times. So really, you are meeting them on the worst day of their life. Oh, gosh, that's the worst. Right. Well, to yeah. find out the news that that somebody that you love and just talked to two hours ago has been killed in a car accident is really hard news to get. And they're not expecting that. They just saw them. Many times you do have to tell them more than once because it doesn't sink in. You know, hey, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your son was killed in a car accident. What, my son? You know, yes, your son was killed in a car accident, you know? Uh, Well, where is he? There's a lot of other questions that go along with that. But that's another thing that I do as well is teach in the police academy how to do death notifications. Because if I got called out to do every death notification, I would be getting called out every two or three hours. In a county with 350,000 people, somebody's always dying, you know? So 
they can do them as well. And a lot of times the detectives who are on the scene will go do a death notification because they also probably have some questions for the family that they might be able to answer as well. But we teach in the police academy how to do a death notification. And so I tell them, listen, you have to be compassionate, but you also have to be direct. And really attitude is everything. The way that you say something to people that are hearing that news matters more than what you're saying to them. You know? Yes. You have to be compassionate, but you have to be direct because if you went and said, Hey, uh, I hate to tell you this, but we lost your son tonight. Well, what do you think the first thing they're going to say is, well, go find him. If you lost him, then go find him, you know? So just to try to avoid that, you have to use words like died or has been killed or, you know, apparent suicide, which again, you have to be very careful with that too, because if you tell them it's a suicide and they come back later and say that it's a homicide, they think you're covering something up or vice versa. Oh, you know? yeah. But, oh, you told me that it was a homicide and now you're trying to tell me that he killed himself. He would never kill himself. You're covering something up. So you have to tread lightly when it comes down to dealing with people at their homes and things like that. I said it's better to say nothing than to say the wrong thing, you know. Things like, I'm sorry for your loss, or is there anything we can do for you? Those are always good things to say. But one thing that people fall into a lot of times is they'll say, well, I know how you feel. And you're standing there with somebody who's lost a a baby. And thankfully, I, I have not had this happen to me, but I've seen it happen where they said, you've lost a child. Well, no, 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 I I haven't lost a child, but, but I can only imagine how you feel. Well, then you don't know how I feel, but that's what I mean by you can say the wrong thing. It's better not to say anything than to say the wrong thing. And if you don't know what to say, just stop talking. And I tell them this, you can't get in trouble for what you don't say. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen this happen before too. I think it's pretty funny though. Um, you know, when somebody's doing a, uh, like a media interview or something and they stick a microphone in somebody's face and they just leave it there, that person feels like they have to ramble on and keep talking. And that's usually (laughs) the clip that they're going to use. You know, um, so people get into these situations where there's just silence and they feel like they have to say something. So they start saying things that they wish later on they didn't say. Yes, 100%. Right. So I teach them, (laughs) don't feel obligated to say something. Saying nothing is better than saying the wrong thing. And honestly, when you're dealing with these people, You are the first person they are talking to on their healing journey. The first step is to find out that somebody died. And from there, it's where is it going to go from here? You could really ruin somebody's life by saying the wrong thing and make it so it takes them 10 years to get over something versus you saying the right thing or in some cases just being there for them and listening to them is something that could set them on that path of healing very, very quickly. You know, and they're never going to get over it. How long are you there? Well, I usually try to stay until they take the body out because, and again, that varies a lot. It really depends on the situation. If somebody's been shot, well, now the local detectives, our department detectives are going to be there because now they have to investigate. Uh, You have forensics detectives that show up onto the scene. And then many times you also have a medical examiner that's going to come there as well. And that could take an hour, hour and a half for the medical examiner to get there. Once the medical examiner gets there, takes all their pictures and everything else, then they'll call the medical examiner's office to come down and remove the body. So they take the body out on a stretcher in a body bag, but they'll put them in the back of like a big SUV. Looks looks kind of like the back of an ambulance almost. Like a Sprinter van? It depends. A couple of them have like a Suburban or something like that, you know, but yes. Something very similar to that. And then they take them down to the medical examiner's office. And if they feel that a autopsy is necessary, then they'll start the autopsy process and everything else. So I, I try to stay there the entire time that the officers are there doing what they're doing. So sometimes, depending on the situation, it can be three or four hours wow. um, because of a couple of things. Number one, I'm not talking to the family the entire time. I don't want to be in their face where they feel like they can't talk to each other. So I'll walk around and talk to all the different officers on the scene and really just shoot the breeze with them, give them an opportunity to talk about something if they want to. Um, if they don't, I'm not shoving it down their throat. You know, we do a lot of ride alongs as well. I will ride a full shift with the officers just to get to know them and give them an opportunity that if they want to talk about something, they can. I always explain it to them, like if a doctor was going to be riding in your car and you had a problem with your foot and you felt like talking about it, you'd say, Hey doc, I got this problem with my foot. What do you think? You know, (laughs) obviously if you got a problem with your foot and you know, a doctor's there and you don't feel like talking about it, you're just not going to bring it up. So I kind of look at it that way when I'm with them. If they want to talk about something, they know what I do. They know what I can offer them in the way of talking about spiritual things and whatever else. And if they want to talk about it, then I'll gladly talk about it to them, but I'm not going to shove it down their throat. 
either. So to go back to what you were talking about, I do try to stay on the scene until the police officers clear up and leave. I'm trying to help the family through that process. Hey, this is what they're doing now. This is what they're going to do next. This is what's going to happen after that. I guess to say it in in one way is like an added benefit that I am helping walking them through the process. My job is to is to deal with the family so the police can do their job. And not that the police don't want to deal with the family, but they have a job to do. If they have to deal with the family because they're asking them constant questions or they're saying get get him off the floor, he's you know, he's been laying there for 3 hours, well, that puts a lot of pressure on the police and now they're not going to do their job to the best of their ability and whatever else. If I can have the family kind of set aside and just saying, "Hey, this is why they're doing what they're doing." And they are doing it as quickly as possible. They're very sensitive to the same thing. They're treating this the exact same way that they would be treating this if it was their family member. This is what they have to do. And most people are very understanding with that, you know. And I know this may sound kind of counterproductive, but I try to get them laughing. Because if they're laughing, and I'm not just telling them jokes and whatever else, I'm trying to get them to remember the good times that they had with the person that they're now sending out in a body bag. And if I can get them to laugh about some memories or talk about some things that they remember the most about them, then they're not thinking about them laying on the floor dead. They're remembering them as they lived. So that's that's kind of my approach. I don't know if every chaplain does that or not, but that's my approach when I'm at a scene. And I want them to feel as good as they can feel with the situation that they're going through by the time I leave. So I often will encourage them, hey, let's step into the other room. You're more than welcome to stand there and watch them load the body into the back of the vehicle. But, you know, that's not the last thing that you want to remember about them. You want to remember them the way that you saw them the last time you saw them, you know. So that's a hard thing to watch. Yeah. Well, and some are like, no, 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 I'm going to be there. I'm going to walk them out to the back of this thing. And, and I understand that, too. But I'm just trying to help them start down that healing process. And the way that you start down that process is by partly just remembering the person as they were, not as they are now. That's got to be hard for the families to be there on a scene because not everybody dies in a bed nicely looking like they're asleep. Yes. And then that's really tough to see. And then if there's a sheet on them or something, that would be like stuck in my brain, I would think. Yes. You know? Yep. Well, somebody finds them. And then once they call the police, we clear that scene. So they're not sitting in the living room, you know, on the couch chatting while the body is laying on the floor next to them. They're brought out of the house at that point. So they don't know what's going on inside because some of it's not pretty. So it really is one of those things where they're not seeing the whole process. So... They might have seen that body and that image might be in their mind, but it was not for a very long time. If I can get them to start talking about, oh, yeah, he used to do this and he used to do that and we used to do this, then that image of them seeing that person on the floor may be there, but it's going to be kind of like a fuzzy image. If all they're thinking about as the police are doing their job is that body laying in there on the floor, it's just burning and burning and burning into their mind. And they're going to think about it for a long, long time. So if I can get them to talk about something else, the way that they live, the way that they used to have fun together and do this and do that, then to me, and I mean, there's no science behind this, but it seems to me like it, it helps. Then it's just a fuzzy little picture and it goes away a whole lot faster. I would think so. Yeah, because then you don't see that. Exactly. My mom passed away in, in uh, 2018. Oh, very young. Sorry. She was only 55. She was very, very healthy, else, but she got ovarian cancer. And I was able to spend about the last week or so in the hospital with her. And, you know, I didn't take any pictures of her in the hospital bed. So if I try to remember, because she had lost, I mean, she was never big. She was like 120 pounds soaking wet her entire life, probably less than that. But by the time she died, she was like 70. So it's one of those things where you have that image in your mind. But five years have passed now almost. And I really have a hard time trying to remember what she looked like in that bed because I didn't take pictures. And I remember my mom the way that she was um, versus remembering the way that she was as she was dying, you know. So I, I'm trying to help that process happen as quickly as it can for those people. And the quicker they can get that memory out of their mind to me, the easier it is for them to start down that pathway of healing. So one of the first things I wanted to clarify is when you get called to a scene, how does that determination happen? Is that because a police officer sees a family that could use your assistance and guidance? And then do they ask 
permission first before notifying you or how does it actually work? That's a good question. That is something that we actually teach in the police academy as well. What's the process? So pretty much any officer on a scene can call for a chaplain because sometimes there is a situation where, and I don't mean this in any kind of derogatory way at all, but an old lady dies and it doesn't bring the whole police department out there because that happens quite a bit. So there's two officers on the scene and neither one of them are sergeant or lieutenant or something like that. They're road officers who got called to that scene. And now the family is just really distraught because obviously, even if she's an old lady, she means something to that family and that family might need me to come out there so they can call me. What they would normally do now, I've got a good relationship with a lot of the officers. So sometimes they will call me directly, but mostly what happens is they'll call our communication center and communications will call me. And then it goes into the official call log and everything else. Hey, a chaplain was called. This was the time that they were called and everything else. Now on a bigger scene where there's been a shooting, you're going to get everybody out there. And once they got the situation under control, then they're going to start releasing officers back out to their beats and whatever else to take some regular calls once they know what the situation is. But in that case, usually it's going to be a lieutenant or maybe even a captain or a major that will call and ask me to come out there. So they'll go through communications first because everything has to be documented and put in the call log just for the official transcript of how that entire scene was handled, they would call communications. Communications would call me. And so let's say you showed up at my house and I had an emergency here. Will the police officer ask me before they call you, like, we have a chaplain, would you like me to call them? Or do they just call you without Yes. 99 times out of a hundred, they're asking the people if they want a chaplain there. Yeah. I don't just get automatically called anytime there's an incident because there are some people who are anti-religious. They don't want somebody there. You know, I don't want your prayers. I don't want your God. I don't want anything, you know, get away. And in that case, that's doing more harm than good. And that's what I'm saying. 99 times out of a hundred, because there have been times where they've called me out and I've gotten there and the family's like, no, nah, we don't want you to pray with us. And then I'll just, I'll wait because when there's a big scene like that and there's a lot of family members on there, chances are that there's a couple who would want to talk to a chaplain. And when they find out that I'm there, they'll either come seek me out or they'll ask me to come over there. But yeah, most of the time the officer's saying, listen, we have a chaplain. Would you like us to call the chaplain? Yeah, I'm not super religious myself, but yeah. I could see in a situation, even just having you brought out just to help guide through, okay, this is what's going to happen next. And this is going to, you know, like that yeah. to me seems yeah. very comforting, even if it's like, right. hey, I don't want to sit down and pray, but right. Having exactly. someone guide me through the process of what's going to happen or what should happen or what we can do next. Like that seems extremely helpful. Yeah. And I try to be very sensitive to that too. I'm not just going to come walking up on the scene praying as I'm walking up to your door, you know, um, yeah. at least out loud. I do. <laughs> I do. I do pray for wisdom often because I never know what situation I'm going to get into, you know, Fair enough. Um, yeah. but I will say that a lot of people don't even know what a chaplain is. I'll show up and they'll say, Hey, the chaplain's here. And they're like, what's a chaplain, <laughs> you know? And so basically I tell them I'm a pastor for the police department. And then when you say pastor, most of them know what it is. And they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. You know, come in. We could use a prayer right now or something like that. And um, there's been many scenes that I've been on where they knew that I was coming out as the chaplain and they didn't want to pray together. They just didn't feel like they were in the mood for it or whatever, you know? So, and then on the other hand, there's like, oh, glad you're here. Yes. Hey, everybody get over here. You know, we're going to get the family together and pray, you know? So it just, it really depends. Every situation is different. Every scene is different, but yeah, they, they always ask before I just show up. I guess for a clarification question too, is it's a non-denominational thing, right? Like you could show yes. up with a Christian family or a Catholic family. Yes. Well, and that's, that's why that having a a more diverse chaplain corps helps. I'm Baptist. And so I'm not going to pretend to be a Catholic on the scene. I will try to get somebody there who is that can deal with that family the way that they need to be dealt with. The last thing I want to do is get there and try to pretend to be something that I'm not and offend somebody. So I will get somebody out there whose faith matches what this family believes. You know what I'm saying? But again, most of the time, the reason I'm being called is because they don't have a church. They don't have a pastor. They don't really even have a faith, so to speak, that they identify with. That's why I'm being called in the first place. So yeah, I'm not out there proselytizing. I'm not out there trying to get them into my church or anything like that. I'm there trying to help them from a spiritual standpoint, because we are soul and spirit. And when we neglect that side of us, then we're neglecting a huge part of who we are. So that's why I'm there.
So we do the death notifications, and honestly, that turns into a, a lot of other things as well when it comes to helping these families out. But it's not all bad. We do, um, well, I guess I do funerals too, <laughs> and uh, oh so so I guess it is. But, but what ends up <laughs> happening with some of these people is the reason I'm getting called out is because they don't have a pastor, they don't have a church. One of the first things that I ask them when I get to the scene is, "Do you have a pastor that I can call?" And some of them are like, "Oh yeah, I do. I didn't even think to call him." You know, okay, well let me call him for you. Need to come out. Some of them are like, "I do, but I don't like him, and I don't want him here." You know, <laughs> so you know. But then the other ones are like, "No, I don't." So then that's where I kind of step in and do what their pastor would do if they had one. But then I do end up kind of forming a little bit of a relationship with these people in just that short amount of time, and so they'll say. Hey, would you mind doing the funeral? You were there when they died. You saw the whole process. You've gotten to know us a little bit. Would you do the funeral? So I've done a good number of funerals. And then another thing that we do a lot of is invocations. So we are there at every event that the police department does. So they have award ceremonies a couple times a year where they give out meritorious unit awards, life-saving awards. Oh, by the way, I was able to get a life-saving award a couple of years awesome. ago. Yeah. So I, uh, like I mentioned, we do a lot of these ride-alongs and we had a young lady whose boyfriend called and said, I can't get a hold of her. She's been talking about committing suicide and I'm I'm really scared that she is trying to go through with it, you know? So it was December and it doesn't get real cold in Virginia, but it actually had snowed the night before. So we got a dog out there and started tracking where he, he had a, a general ping of her phone, but it was like a big park and a lot of woods and everything. So uh, we got a dog out there and sure enough, we found her hanging from a beam on a little, like a little picnic table. But apparently... She couldn't get the rope high enough to hang herself completely. So she had it around her neck, but she was sitting down to hang herself. And then what would happen is she would kind of uh, lose consciousness a little bit, but then she would wake up and realize where she was at, stand up, realize what she was trying to do and sit back down. So she was like slowly killing herself, but we found her before she was dead and got her down, got the rope off of her and everything else. We're able to rush her to the hospital and she lived and actually she's doing very well. She ended up becoming an EMT and doing great. But uh, funny story along with that, she said that she got off of work and went to a store, got some rope and things that she was going to use and had a tree in mind that she was going to hang herself from. And she walked down there to that tree and there was a homeless guy down there and he scared her so bad that she left. And oh went my to God. I'm like, what were you scared <laughs> of? You, you were going to commit suicide, you know, but obviously yes. God intervened in her life there. And she ended up walking like two or three miles away. And it was that walk that gave us enough time to be able to find her. Why do you think not all departments have chaplains? Uh, well, part of it is they've never been offered to have a chaplain come on. Some of them, I'll be honest with you, have had bad experiences with chaplains who just didn't know what they were doing. Really? Well, so the way that we bring chaplains on here, we do a very thorough interview process. And they have to go through a, a like a 40-page personal history report that they have to fill out. Because we have access to all of the police buildings. I've got a card that gets me into everything. So they have to know that I'm not a criminal that's yeah. <laughs> trying to get on the inside or something. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, we do everything that they do to hire a new police officer except for a polygraph test. We don't have to take a polygraph test like the police officers do. But How come? Uh, you know, I don't know. I guess I, I guess they figure if they can't trust the pastor, then who can they trust? But <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, um, yeah, it's a pretty stringent process for that. And then once they make it past that, they're checking all the references and everything else. But then also, in order to be a chaplain with our department, and it's not this way everywhere, but in order to be a chaplain with our department, you have to be ordained by your organization, whatever that happens to be. Mostly it's churches. Ideally, if you're involved in a church ministry, then you are used to dealing with people in situations like that, like the ones that you're going to be dealing with when you're out on the street. And then we have a one-year probation period as well. So there's people out there, believe it or not, and there's people like this everywhere, but they they want the chaplain title so they can add it to a resume. They're not going to do anything. Really? Well, because let's say you're trying to get a job in a hospital as a chaplain. Well, they're probably not just going to pull somebody off the street who's never done anything before unless you've gone through some kind of program or something like that. Well, if you can say, oh, yeah, I was a chaplain with this police department, you know, then, OK, well, that gives you a reference. But if you didn't do anything as the chaplain with the police department, then, you know, it's just a resume builder is all it is. So we have requirements on how many ride alongs. You know, we require one ride along uh, a, a quarter. You have to take a certain number of call outs. You have to be available for different things and you have to be involved. And if you're not at the end of that year, we just say, hey, this doesn't look like it's going to be a good fit for you and us. 
so one of the other things that we do, and I was thankful to have the opportunity to be one of the ones that helped get this started in this department is peer support teams, where basically some people may not feel comfortable going and talking to a mental health professional because then they've got the stigma around them, or they're not going to go to a supervisor and say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about killing myself because I've just had so much on my plate. Well, the first thing they're going to do is say, give me your gun, give me your badge, let's figure this out. Well, an officer without a gun and a badge to them is not an officer, you know? <laughs> so they're not going to necessarily go to one of their superior officers and talk to them about that, but they might be willing to say, hey, you're my buddy. We've been at this a long time together. Listen, this is what I'm dealing with. Can we talk? So, so there's that side, but then there's also the peer support side of, hey, this guy is acting very different than the way that he's always acted. I mean, this guy is always sharp, but now his uniforms are wrinkled. Doesn't look like he's getting any sleep. You know, a couple of the decisions that he's made just don't seem like great decisions. He's always been a talker and now he's really withdrawn. Something's just not right. So we'll get somebody on the peer support team and it's all confidential. No records are kept. No names are written down. No anything. The only time we have to report something is if we feel like they're an immediate threat to themselves or to somebody else. But other than that, whatever they talk about is confidential. So it gives them an outlet. It gives them somebody to talk to. We have about 50 people on our peer support team. So there's somebody that they will feel comfortable talking to. And sometimes you can convince them, hey, you really need to go talk to a mental health professional, somebody that knows more about this than I do. But listen, I'll go with you. Yeah. So they feel a little comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. If they're there with somebody that they know cares about them, and that they know they're much more likely to try to go and get help. And honestly, that's the way that it is with the officers a lot of times. And if you can go and talk to somebody about, man, this incident was really bad. This and this and this and this happened. By the time they get to the end of it, they feel like they've just taken that load and dropped it, you know? And I'm semi-detached from it because it, I wasn't there. I didn't see anything. So it's not a burden that I have to bear now. It's just a place for them to drop that load off of their mind and give them somebody to talk to. Maybe you can clarify this because this is an assumption I'm making. So I'm not sure that it's okay. 100% factual. Uh -huh. But if I was a police officer and I go and talk to a therapist, that has to go into like my personnel file. But if I talk to you, it does not. Correct. So do you, do you feel that's kind of a reason why a chaplain should be within the infrastructure of the police departments? Because I feel like that would almost encourage people to talk even if they're not religious because hey i can let this out i can vent it out but there's not that stigma attached to it that i went to a therapist and i can't handle my job yes now having said that i do think that for the most part a lot of those records are confidential when they go to a therapist because within this department they actually have it's called employee health basically and so a supervisor may know that they went and visited employee health, but they don't know if it's because they had the flu or because they were thinking about committing suicide. They don't know. Mm. Um, so it goes into their record that way. But the problem is that a lot of these officers, again, because of the stigma, don't want to go to a therapist because now it makes me look weak. And now it makes me look like I just can't handle this job and whatever. And like I say, some of that is changing. You know, um, we are actually teaching them in the academy now about the peer support program. And listen, if you need help, you need to get help. We'd much rather have you alive getting help than dead because you weren't willing to get help and you committed suicide. You know, so that stigma is going away. It's still there with a lot of the older officers and those that have been on the force for a while. But even with them, a lot of it is I changing. But you're right. There, there are a lot of people who would be much more willing to come talk to me because Hey, it's just two two guys hanging out. And what do you think about this? You know, or you're married and you've got kids. What do you think about this? Because again, it's one of those things where they're just not necessarily willing to, I don't need to go talk to a therapist. I'm just having a little bit of issue with blank, you know? Right. So to yeah, them, it seems I mean, very isolated to one right. incident. Like I just exactly. need to talk through this one yeah. thing and then I'll be good. Yeah, exactly. Now we also do have like debriefings and everything else. So if there is a huge critical incident, like, uh, well, here's a perfect example. We had this happen. A, uh, a firefighter was on the side of the road working an accident and a driver that wasn't paying attention hit him and killed him. So all the police show up to that because now it's a crime scene as well. Well, they're all seeing this. They're all public safety. So, you know, now everybody gets together. We have a big debriefing and we talk about it. We talk through it. We help them. Hey, these are some of the things that you're going to be feeling. Some of the things that you're going to be dealing with afterwards. These are normal symptoms. 
if they persist, that's when you need to reach out and get some help. But this is normal. You're going to feel guilt. You're going to feel why him and not me. You're going to feel anger. You're going to feel all these different things. That's normal. That's fine. But if it persists and three weeks from now, you're still not sleeping, then then get help. Reach out to somebody. So that's what we do a lot with these debriefings and stuff as well. And a lot of times they will bring in the mental health providers and things that are part of the county and stuff as well, just to you know, to help that and get them going on that process because they need that healing too. Same way that the people in the community do when they've been through a critical incident. Another question I have, and I know you touched upon it, was kind of like you are obligated to report it if you feel like they are a threat to themselves or someone yes. else. But I kind of view that as like, a red, yes. red flag, yeah. right? But is there a yellow flag to where maybe they're telling you things and you really feel like they're struggling? Is there ever a situation where you would maybe go to their supervisor or something to say, hey, like they maybe need some time off. They're working through some issues here. Like, I feel like there's got to be people that are just not so far at the red flag, but are maybe just struggling to cope. Yeah. So there are some yellowish red flags. So obviously our goal at the end of the day is to keep that officer from committing suicide, right? That's obviously the end of the line. There's nothing else that you can do for them after that. That is the farthest they could possibly go. But there are some things that would present themselves before that. And so same thing that I talked about when it comes to doing a death notification and being very direct with people. You have to be direct with them and ask them that question. Are you thinking about killing yourself? And if they're really not, they're going to be like, no, I'm not thinking about killing myself. What are you talking about? But I'd rather have them mad at me for asking if they're thinking about killing themselves than I didn't ask that question and I should have. And there's there's a lot of red flags that go along with that too. When they've been depressed for three weeks and now all of a sudden they come into work and they're on cloud nine. Well, that didn't happen because they just got undepressed overnight. That happened because they made the decision in their mind you know what? I'm going to end it all. Everything's good now. So when you ask somebody the question, hey, are you thinking about hurting yourself? No, I'm not thinking about hurting myself. I'm thinking about making it all better. I'm going to get rid of all this hurt. So I'm not thinking about hurting myself. I'm going to kill myself and get rid of it all. So that's why I say you have to be very direct with them in those situations. You know, Um, same thing. If you notice that they're showing up to work and they're just really disheveled or it happens where sometimes they show up to work drunk. And obviously, drinking way more than they would normally drink or partying way longer than they would normally party, especially when they have a shift the next day and things like that. Those are yellow flags where you can say, hey, something is not right. And we have a peer support team and we actually have a lieutenant that's in charge of the peer support team. And so he is still confidential because he's within the peer support team. I would take it to him and say, listen, says he doesn't want to kill himself, but here's a lot of things that And I'm not going to tell you the name. This is the situation. What do you think? And if they say, ah, that really sounds like that guy needs help, you know, all right, who is it? What can we do to help him? You know, so we keep it as confidential as we can. Their supervisors, for the most part, still do not know about it. What would happen is maybe it would be on like a, a major level where they would say, hey, we need this guy to sit out for a tour. You know, we've got some things, whatever. Because you don't want them to have that stigma when they come back or, oh, you know, is he going to bail out on us when it comes down to a time when we need him to cover our backs or whatever else, you know? So it's a fine line of confidentiality of making sure that these officers are being protected and being helped where they need it without overstepping those bounds. So this question that you're asking, it really is a fine line in a lot of those areas. But honestly, the more direct you are, the better it is. But yeah, in my situation, I've never had somebody where I was like, this guy is really a threat to himself. But if I did get to that point, I would go to the lieutenant that's over the peer support team and just say, hey, here's the situation. I'll tell you who it is if you feel like you need to know, but this is the situation. What do you think we need to do? And then that's their decision. I don't know what they do with it after that. It's out of my hands at that point. That's beyond what I have the ability to do. So it seems like what you're providing, Steve, is much needed, especially as we become more aware and accepting of mental health issues. So how do we get you or someone like you in all of the police departments? How does that happen? Well, number one, there has to be people willing to do it because it does take a lot of time and I don't get paid anything to do it. There has to be people willing to volunteer. 
more people have to know about what a chaplain does and what the program is designed to do. And honestly, law enforcement is a tough group to break into. It took me probably two years of being a chaplain before they really embraced me in the department. And I think sometimes people are like, well, I'm not appreciated, so I'm not going to do it. Well, you will be if you stick with it and you just continue to do what they need you to do and what helps them. And I think some people just, they're not willing to put that time and that effort in. But then on the other hand, the department needs to know about what the chaplains can offer. Once, once they find out and they realize how beneficial chaplains are, and so, you know, I, I think really it's just getting awareness out there. So if I'm listening to this and I want to become a chaplain because, hey, I, I want to work with my police yeah. department. I want to be involved. Sure. I guess first question, how do you become a chaplain? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, number one, if somebody wanted to do that first step, I would go to the police department and say, hey, do you have a chaplain's program? And if they say no, then say do you want one? <laughs> um, here's what the chaplains yeah. can offer. Here's what we could do. I'd be willing to head the program up and get it started here. If you're willing to work with us on it and go from there, if you don't know anything about being a chaplain, then obviously uh, some of those first steps would maybe be to, to go online, look it up, find out what a chaplain does, look up some of these organizations that train chaplains uh, and go from there. Now I'll be honest with you. When I came on as a chaplain in this department, the chaplain's program was kind of in disarray. The lead chaplain before his wife had cancer. And so naturally he stepped away and, and helped her with that. And then another one that was really doing all of it passed away. So when I came in, there was no structure. And so I went through that whole process and they said, Hey, congratulations. You've been accepted to the chaplain's program. You're a chaplain now. And I said, okay, so is there some training or whatever? And I said, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, I don't I don't think we have anything, but you're a pastor. Just go do what you would do as a pastor. And I'm like, okay. okay. So, I mean, it was a trial by fire. And the longer I did it, the more I got involved. I figured it out, but I think it would really be helpful if we had some training here for these new chaplains that are coming on. Well, Steve, that sounds like to me that that's your next direction yeah. where, you know, God yeah. is going to push you. There needs to be some sort of roadmap yeah. for a program within departments that could be pushed out yeah. to other states and say, hey, if you are interested in doing this is what it would look like. This is the training that they would need to go through. This is the interview process. So, you know, there's your next passion project. Yeah. So we do have a we do have a chaplain manual that we've put together. And it Amazing. really does. Yeah. So it A to Z on this is what you have to do within our department. And it would change within departments, but I'd be willing to share that with anybody that was interested in getting a program started, or honestly, for that matter, I'd be interested in even talking to anybody, but we are still in the process of developing our training manuals as far as what you do when you get out there and stuff like that. But one of the things that we do, so, so the police officers, when they graduate from the academy after 32 weeks, they have a badge and they have law enforcement credentials. They can do anything that a police officer does, but they're not cleared to be an officer on their own, at least in this department. They have to go through about six or eight weeks of what they call field training. So they're the ones driving the car. They're the ones initiating all of the traffic stops and calls and everything else, but they have a, a seasoned officer in the seat next to them to help them make sure they're making the right decisions, doing the right things according to policy and everything else. And they have a whole list of certain calls and certain traffic stops and certain things that they have to do to be able to be cleared as an official officer on their own. So we are starting kind of that same process with the chaplains program. You have to be with me on this kind of call out, this kind of call out, this kind of call out before you're cleared to go to a call out on your own where you could very possibly mess up somebody's life. And I'm not saying that you're not qualified or whatever, but if you don't know what you're doing and you've never done it before, then you really could cause a lot more harm than you're doing good. So just walking them through that process by being there, hey, just watch what I do. I'm not perfect. I'm not the model chaplain, but this is what I do. And this is what seems to be effective. This gives you an idea of what you're trying to accomplish when you're there. So amazing. Well, I, I think you covered all my questions. Nikki, do you have any last lingering ones? No, yeah, they'll yeah. come later because that always happens too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you do have anything else, you know, you're more than welcome to send me an email or, or anything, you know, and um, no, yeah. it probably will because it yeah. always comes yeah. later. So we're just going to wrap up, Steve, with their very silly, goofy questions just to kind of get to know you on a more personal level. Okay. I think I'm going to go with one we haven't asked in a while. What's your favorite emoji to use when you're texting? Oh. 
Um, <laughs> honestly, probably the thumbs up is the one that I use the most. Yeah. I yeah. was okay. just going to say, I feel that yeah, you're a yeah, thumbs I do. upper. I don't oh, know why man. I was like, so, but I, I use the smiley face a lot too, because that really says everything you need to say. You know, I'm not one of these ones that does all the LOL stuff, you know, so I just send a smiley face instead. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I always like to ask this one too, just because I like to see what people collect. What do you have a lot Ooh, of? Books. I have, yeah, I've got a million okay. books. Um, I say a million, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, I bet you I'm closing in on a thousand books probably between the books that I have here in my office at home and at church in my office out there. I've always loved reading. I've always loved books. So yeah, I have way too many, way too many. Well, we love oh, books yeah. over yep. here too. <laughs> and see, a lot of people have moved into doing like Kindle and that kind of stuff. I tried that. I can't read a book on a screen. I've got to have the actual oh, no. hard copy of the book. So <laughs> yeah. I'm the same way. Well, Steve, thank you so much for spending some of your afternoon with us. It was an absolute yeah, pleasure. It. And what you are doing and providing for your community is so honorable. And I, I respect you thank so you. much for it. And the fact that you're willing and able to do it. Thank you so much. I don't right. live in your community, but I wish I did because man, you are really making an impact. Well, I appreciate so it. On behalf of yeah, them, thank I you. will say thank you because I'm sure yeah, they are thank so you. great. And, and I know they really do appreciate it and they let me know that they appreciate it. So it, it does help to be in a place where you know that people are being helped, number one, but also that they appreciate that help when you're giving it to them. And like I said, if there's any other questions that come up or something like that, that you want me to answer, send me an email or whatever. Well, thank yes, you so um, much. Well, thanks for letting me join you. And like I mentioned earlier, I enjoy listening to the podcast and just hearing the different uh uh, people talking honestly there's some that you brought on that i didn't even know was a thing you know i didn't even know that i didn't know it you know so oh, um, things that i didn't even know i didn't know and i love learning i love hearing about new things like that so i appreciate your podcast and just enjoy listening to the conversations that you have with people well thank you all righty all right y'all have a good afternoon take care steve thank you so much okay so ending episode question would you do the job? I feel like I could because I already talked to people and people talk to me all day long. So I feel like this one I can tap into. Maybe not seeing some of the really sad stuff, but talking with the families and maybe talking with the people, I could probably do. Would you? No. <laughs> no. I knew you were going to say no. <laughs> no, I'm definitely going to have to like ride the bench on this one. Um, not for me. I just don't think I would because like here's 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 the Mariah workings. I'm not necessarily very outwardly emotionally expressive, but I internalize everything. And I think being witnessing and being at the crime scenes and kind of carrying other people's grief, I wouldn't be able to put that down. It would become part of my grief and like my trauma and my struggle, even though I'm removed from it, somehow I would absorb it and I wouldn't be able to let it go. So okay. I think it would be mentally very challenging for me. Okay. Too many emotions for you? Too many emotions. I feel like I would crumble and feel sad and heartbroken for these people I'm interacting with. And, you know, I will say I'm not, you know, a, a word wizard. So I think I would struggle with finding the appropriate things to say to comfort somebody. It's not my strong suit. I'm not pastor chaplain material at all. I feel like my problem would be that where you said that si sometimes you should just not say anything. And, you know, I hate that. So you hate I think the silence. Yeah. I hate the silence. So I think that would be like my problem is that I would just da, 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 and then keep going. And then now I've got a big hole. So that part I'm going to have to watch myself on. But yeah, no, I think yeah, I could you're do gonna this have one. To, how to learn in the silence. You're going to have yeah. to learn to like be in that uncomfortable moment and know that your presence is comforting and you don't need to speak. I don't like silence. It bothers me really bothers me but yeah. that's the only part that I think I could not do he's a great person I mean it makes sense he's a pastor he talks so effortlessly and so like well he's so great he's wonderful no he was fantastic and he's carrying such a heavy a heavy duty for his community and you know it, it is humbling to be in the presence of somebody who is willing to self-sacrifice his time and his effort for something that he's passionate about and for people that he doesn't know I think that's it's loving you know there are good people in the world they do still exist yeah and he just has such a nice kind voice 
I feel like he would be good to deliver some bad news because his voice is so kind. Yeah, it reminds me of Daryl. It's kind of like, it's not necessarily what you're saying, it's how you're saying it, and he's very in tune with that. Yeah. So thank you, Steve, for reaching out. We enjoyed you so much. But yeah, to our listeners out there, if you know someone or you yourself work in occupation that might be of interest to our listeners, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. So until next week, you can always reach us on any of our social media handles. If you need us, we will be there. And that's all I've got. Well, until next week then. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.